Some uh, philosophy. Can you call this philosophy? I don't know. Baudrillard. Talatama Rajan said you could. She knew it. She's pretty smart. Uh, but anyways, um, some philosophy in the AM. Good stuff. Continuing on here with impossible exchange, at least the second half. So this is the part titled The Flow of Change, The Cycle of Becoming... And the divide of destiny. So what the hell does that mean? Well, let's find out. Uh, beginning here, this is probably one of the more problematic things that Baudrillard comes to do in his work, uh, but challenge, or at least criticize, what is going on with regards to identity at, you know, kind of undescript nowness, right? Saying, like, oh, people today, uh, whatever that means. But here we have it, where he says that um, sex, genes, networks, desires, and partners, everything now falls within the ambit of change and exchange, destiny, pain, everything is becoming optional. Death itself is an option. The very sign of birth, your astrological sign, will one day be an optionally available in the future. Zodiacal Surgery Institute, where under certain conditions you will be able to change your birth sign the way you can change your face today. Which, like, okay. Like I will reiterate, obviously, if someone listening to this is using it to fuel their alt-right intentions, then fuck off. But there, what he is getting at here is something interesting, at least calling attention to some things that are considered sacred. So in the case of one's birthday, uh, and I should reiterate, reiterate i should go back to an idea that he presents in seduction so there he makes a distinction between the rule and the law where he says that the law can be you know transcended it can be um, defied it can be challenged whereas the rule is something that is is almost like sacred the rule is something that people abide by but that doesn't you know enter policy making per se or anything like that uh, it's kind of hidden rules and codes and conventions um so there he makes saying that he says that in a world that is moving further and further away from kind of sacred rites and rituals and, and anything like that um he he wants to pay or he tries to pay credence to uh, astrology is being one way for, you know, people to have an attachment to the unknown, an attachment to kind of indeterminateness, right? It, you know, it's kind of like, like okay, whatever, Baudrillard, you silly kook. But what he's doing here is, is responding to that in some way and saying, well, why is it that that is given this kind of permanence? And in our age of, you know, hyper-rational, um, either purely scientific uh, reasoning or, or fundamentalist religious reasoning. Why is it that this zone has somehow not been affected? To which he says that eventually it will with this zodiacal surgery institute. But the entrance of this possibility into the world challenges 
or kind of destabilizes what he understands to be a necessary component of the world that is destiny. So as I mentioned last time, destiny plays a pretty crucial role in that it is, in a sense, the kind of ontological condition of being where things don't don't ascribe by, you know, uh, a pre predetermined plan, but it's almost like, you know, you can't determine where you will go, uh, but it's not to say that that has been set out in advance or something that you choose. So this idea of destiny butts up against the idea of becoming, where becoming implies a kind of uh, autonomous act, right? You choose in a sense, you guided by a logic of desire, you propel yourself in the direction that you want, right? And then we get all these poor readings of Deleuze out of that, like Deleuze and Guattari, I should say, uh, like, oh, just become, you know, this, just become this as though, you know, someone going out into the wilderness suddenly becomes nomad or becomes animal or becomes wilderness. Uh, it's all well and good, but it doesn't get at the crux of the kind of deterritorializing machine that is capitalism and instead mirrors it in many ways. So Baudrillard wants to really resist mirroring that same kind of logic and instead posits that uh, at one time people would just kind of disappear in a sense in their own uh, kind of epistemic framework, one that was guided not by kind of these, these hyper-rational uh, schemes those that are, you know, universalized and all that, but we're actually guided by a kind of geographical limitation, I will say, that would determine one person and that those people would then determine that area. So there was kind of, and I don't want to romanticize a kind of relationship with the earth or anything like that, but in smaller settings, I think that humans are better off, um, you know, existing as such, whereas today with the hyper-rational scientificity, scientificity, um, that capacity disappears. So as we move into the next chapter, The Divide of Destiny, he elaborates on this idea, notably that when someone is given over to the logic of destiny, they undergo perpetual deaths because they lose themselves as autonomous, you know, self-identified, beings and are then, you know, continually subject to these exterior forces that are not, you know, and I want to be uh, more Nietzschean about this. Um, I don't want to discount will, right? Where it's, you know, in Nietzsche, it's not simply as though uh, the will to power or anything like that, um, it's all that guides, you know, human development. He was trying to trying to kind of find a middle ground between, you know, the evolutionary argument, you know, the, the kind of Herbert Spencer survival of the fit, fittest idea and, you know, uh, the will to power thing that put a lot of weight on the individual. So that, I would say, is a marker of what it means to be human and to give and for, to have one of those components give way. That is, if you were to have a system where people had absolutely no autonomy, then they would they would cease to exist as humans and, and then undergo a kind of metaphorical death. Or if the reverse was the case, where if you had people, you know, completely uh, up to their own devices, right? You know, 
they change the world, the world doesn't change them type things, which is certainly the way we've been going with our evolution, uh, where some evolutionary psychologists go so far as to say that we won't evolve anymore because we don't, if there's a barrier that's presented to us, we change the world, we don't change ourselves as far as evolution goes. Um, so these two things mark a kind of death of the human, I think, because Baudrillard is really a Nietzschean in my mind, and there, there are Nietzsche quotes all throughout this book, but yeah, that perpetual deaths. So in this Baudrillardian plan, or in this framework, this illustration, he wants to, and this is something I elaborated on in the first uh, part here, um, he wants to give a narrative to the the other, in a sense, but not, not just the other in like the colonized subaltern other, uh, but the other in uh, the other to will, the other of the will being determinacy and the other of determinacy being the will. There is, you know, a playing going on here, a kind of antagonism that is necessary for the human to be considered as such. And with that being said, of course, the other as, you know, epistemological other, epistemological, epistemic other, um, or, you know, colonized other or anything like that, obviously, because that's what the the West has done, has very little understanding of otherness. It just erases otherness. Um, but with that being said, giving a narrative to this kind of other, and I see a lot of, you know, an interesting approach here, anything is subject then to that logic. So he ends this chapter by saying that uh, it's the book which reads me. You know, I don't read the book. Uh, it's the TV which watches me. You know, I don't watch the book. I don't watch the TV. Uh, it's the object which thinks me. I don't think the object. Giving a narrative to that uh, framework or to, to the object or to the other that is often silenced, right? Even through the critical attempts to evaluate it, or to challenge uh, oppressive authority, oftentimes it comes at the cost of silencing others, right? So one example I would think of would be like white feminists going to various parts of the world and telling uh, global feminists like what they should be doing, right? Silencing them, you know, coming with the, the real knowledge as to how they should be conducting themselves or how they are being oppressed, you know, not considering uh, the role of otherness or what role otherness plays in that in that global system so this propels us into our the next chapter when we we get i think uh the kind of first introduction first introduction a kind of introduction to one of the key terms in baudrillard's work that is is ascribed to him without him having spent spent a great deal of time with it uh but that is uh manichaeanism so Manichaeanism is the idea that there's like a constant struggle between good and evil. So this metaphor between good and evil is, is in a sense a way for him to understand uh, all antagonisms. Whereas I said in the last one video uh, that for Baudrillard, binaries play an important role. That is, they maintain an antagonism that is wholly, uh, that is wholly benevolent in that it pushes each element of the binary to new and, and interesting places or to, uh, to uh, this is the principle of seduction, I should say, where he takes the term seduction, I think from the Latin, from seductio or whatever, that implies uh, 
reverting something from its path, taking it away from its plan. He says that this comes about through the antagonistic relationship between two things. Now, with that being said, I don't think that this, you know, we necessarily only need to think about this in binary terms. And I I just don't mean like in the case of sexes or whatever, but when we introduce any kind of new concepts to things, I think that we can, you know, include trinary or quadinary, I don't know what the term would be, uh, ways to grasp this that can open up new possibility and all that. But what I think is necessary is the distinction made between two things. Whereas if they come together in a kind of oppressive egalitarianism, then that possibility for change goes away. This is the project of the West in many ways is to, you know, how do we disappear the other? How do we, if we can't disappear them, make them, you know, subject to them to our logic, be it the logic of, you know, late capitalism, the logic of scientific rationality, logic of codes, anything like that. Um, because ultimately what we want is to have a homogenous space. Or as Baudrillard puts it in his own words, good, which was in the past an ideal metaphor for the universal, has become an inexorable reality, the reality of the totalization of the world under the banner of technology. So it is evil which now takes over all the potency of the metaphor, whereas at one time this was reversed. Um, so this is also coming out of Nietzsche, the genealogy of morality, where G- uh, Nietzsche makes the case that the English psychologists that are out, you know, almost performing a kind of anthropological uh, archaeology of, of humanity depart from the axiom that humans are good, you know, whatever the hell that means, but they are, you know, good. Whereas this idea of good, you know, is simply a relic of a kind of uh, aristocratic, you know, conception of good. And it doesn't correspond to any kind of a neutral goodness. As he says, there's no such thing as non-perspectival knowledge. So this idea of the good gives out, or becomes total, gives out. It very much becomes the global logic. That is because what is associated with good is one's you know ability to correspond to the global system in one way or another. This serves as the basis for uh, his theorization of the Vietnam War, where one might recall in Simulacran Simulation, he makes the case that the United States pulled out of Vietnam, but they won the war. Now, what the hell does that mean? Well, he says that winning the war, whatever that would have meant, probably killing more people, um, only came about or was only uh, w- was a secondary task. The first task was to enter the Vietnamese army and the Viet Cong into kind of global system. As soon as that was accomplished, it didn't matter Communism isn't a threat. As long as communism abides by the logic of the system, uh, that is, it it is the mirror of production, and it exists on a global level, where, you know, you have the UN representatives, and you have ambassadors, and all this type of shit, uh, then for the United States, that's all you need. Then you are mapped, you are understood, you don't pose that indeterminate threat. So it is in that sense that the good comes to be a kind of universal phenomenon where not only does it get universalized, but by corresponding to the logic of the universal, then you are considered good. So obviously this presents a problem for Baudrillard because 
keeping in mind the logic of binaries, as soon as one that is good dominates evil, the the other, then this the possible antagonism between the two go away. They cease being reversible at that point. So reversible is another key concept in Bojerzova. That is the idea that um, there's no singular, you know, locus of power that isn't subject to the law of reversibility, where there is a kind of um, th those that are considered oppressed cannot gaze back and challenge that authority, not by virtue of their, you know, taking to the streets, even though that is one way, but simply by just being. Uh, so by making the binary turn into kind of like one homogenous space, it gets rid of this logic and it gets rid of what Baudrillard says is kind of the, the, I guess, the condition of the world in a sense, and that's why it poses such a threat. Okay, but can this really happen completely? Can we see the total disillusionment of the binary system in favor of a kind of homogenous space? In the next chapter, Dissociated Society, Parallel Society, he makes the case that this can't really come about. And this echoes the thesis he puts forth, uh, puts forward in Seduction, when he says that, you know, seduction can't totally go away. Seduction being the extension of reversibility doesn't just disappear. It's always going to linger to some extent. Now, with that being said, someone could respond and say, well, what the hell is Baudrillard writing about them? What's the concern? Um, the concern, I, I would think, is that nevertheless, there are still forces trying to get rid of it. And we don't know yet if it can go away. Uh, but, you know, it's always good to keep that possibility on the horizon, you know, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. So in his words, uh, as our society becomes globalized and as we identify willingly or otherwise with this integral world, duality resurfaces in the modalities of disorganization which haunt our systems. So moving on a little bit, it is simply that all liberated energy releases an antagonistic energy that every different secrets secretes an equal indifference, that every truth secretes an even greater uncertainty. So there are always going to be zones that oppose this logic, and even in those spaces where this logic, logic is imposed, there will be uh, pockets of insurgency, not like a direct insurgency of taking to the streets or anything like that, even though that will probably happen, um, but there will be just logics that do not subscribe to it. This is the very basis of science fiction as a genre. Like, science fiction never depicts a perfect, you know, perfectly mapped world. There's always antagonism, which, you know, subscribes to the logic of cinema and narrative generally. You don't have a narrative if you don't have a conflict. Um, but with that being said, si I think science fiction does depict this well, where there's always the dream of some kind of perfect system but that is always confronted with its antagonism or with an antagonism so one of the other consequences of this desire to homogenize or to enter things into kind of this global system is the proportional increase of discrimination as Baudrillard says or discrimination will even increase in proportion to the progress of integration in his words which is absolutely true because as soon as you have um what you believe to be a generalizable logic of humankind be it through their organization or about their biology as the jackals of YouTube celebrity stardom goes, uh, 
then it makes it all that much easier to, you know, disavow, remove, disintegrate those people that uh, do not fit that model. Those people that are integrated, however, are presented with their own problem that Baudrillard doesn't want to discount, where it'd be wrong for us to say that, you know, those people that are actually integrated are given like the utmost privilege. This integration is in and of itself a, another problem, where they are, as Baudrillard says, guided by the logic of eminence, that is by their own kind of autopoetic, or in other words, they, they become a kind of closed circuit, kind of echo chamber, um, and prefer that then to transcendence, to change, to development, to anything like that. So they are, in a sense, blocked off, closed from this kind of possibility. So this idea of the end of transcendence does have uh, traces all throughout Baudrillard's work. I think I think as early as you know his second book, he was making claims about this in the consumer society, in a very kind of uh, kind of Marxian way. The Frankfurt School Marxian type way, um, making the case that there has been the end of transcendence. And that propels us here into the third section of the book, um, titled Poetic Transference. So what the hell does that mean? Let's find out. Uh, First chapter being Beyond Artificial Intelligence, Radicality of Thought. Sorry for my chair. It makes noise. So Baudrillard's broader discussion of artificial intelligence is a little bit complicated. Um, At one point, he makes the case that, uh, and I don't remember if it's in here, I don't think it is, Um, he makes the case that artificial intelligence is not only devoid of intelligence, it's devoid of artifice. It's kind of a, a misnomer to characterize artificial intelligence as artificial, because if we abide by the logic of the simulacrum, we ourselves, you know, we who consider ourselves to be the reference point for artificial intelligence that give uh, legitimacy to that term artificiality, precisely because, you know, artificial intelligence is not us, therefore it is artificial. If we abide by the logic of the simulacrum, then we know that we ourselves are not uh, real. We are not an originary point of kind of biological certainty, or we, we, we weren't just dropped down from the heavens we are instead you know part of this very system so in that sense calling artificial intelligence means very little it's most would more appropriately be called just like human intelligence which we have no recourse to believe that we are any less artificial than that intelligence or that technology so artificial intelligence performs a function and that is, it solves the problem of thought, as Baudrillard says. So the problem of thought for Baudrillard is the idea that thought, you know, not being compared with anything else or cannot be compared with anything else because it's a very strictly human thing in a, in a kind of weird way. Um, for that reason, it always is aware of its own inc- incompleteness. That is because it can't be verified. Like the... Uh, impossible exchange at the beginning of this book when he's talking about how the world can't be verified because there's not enough room for it and it's double in many ways the true the same can be said of thought so thought tries to always project itself onto machinic others so there are artificial intelligence serves this role 
by being that point from which we can then differentiate ourselves as thinking beings by saying, we know we are these intelligent, superior thinking beings precisely because over there are the artificial ones. And machines or artificial intelligence serve the end of um, exemplifying our, you know, general disdain for thinking. Or today, I think that was that is certainly the case. You know, even those people that proclaim to be thinkers, again, people on YouTube like me, who know very little, um, rely so heavily on the facts, whatever the fuck those are, um, the science, anything like that, the religion. And then they just keep reverting back to that doctrine in order to justify their points. So they give up, they, they give themselves over as thinking subjects to be thought subjects. They are then the mouthpieces, mouth, mouthpieces for another doctrine, for another thinking apparatus. Because it's a very scary thing to think for oneself, especially in a world so determined like ours. Uh, because to think means to have you know, some ability to reflect on your world. And when we live in a world that's already so, like, indetermined, live in a world that is so uh, fragmented, it seems like a pretty fragile world. And to think it in that way, to reflect on it, is to make it even more fragile, to make it even more uh, indetermined. And it comes down to, I think for many people, survival, uh, People don't have the ability to just, you know, think, uh, whatever even that means, or to be reflective agents in the world because, you know, they have their, you got to work two nine to five jobs and they're a single parent somewhere. So then it's all these other people that come to the fucking, they rise up from the mud, um, you know, saying, don't worry, I'm going to think for you. Take my uh, white ass opinion and then... There, you, you're good to go. You got the, the stamp of contemporary knowledge, whatever the hell that means. But, you know, I, I digress. This is my resentment for that stuff. And I'm doing the exact same thing, obviously. I'm a noob. But, yeah, all right, I digress. So, what this kind of um, end, end of thought represents is, is the moment that humans become purely operational, a kind of neo-Taylorism where uh, Taylorism, you know, is the introduction of an efficiency into the industry that goes as follows. Instead of one person, like a shoemaker making a shoe, maybe they make two shoes a day. I, I don't know how long it would take. Maybe a shoe a week. I don't know. Um, they instead hire, you know, five people where they have one person making shoelaces and that's all they do all day. Just make shoelaces. Another person makes soles. That's all they do. And another person making the, I don't know, whatever the, leather, whatever. So what that allows for is people not to get bogged down in learning many tasks or being proficient at the whole operation, but just one operational task. So they don't have to think about it. You know, they sit on the assembly line, do their thing, get the hell out of there, right? They clock in, clock in and out, just doing their job. And that's it. Very much can be said about things today, even in those zones that are supposed to be the zones for critical thought like how many students have I had come to me asking me like or in class or whatever say well is this going to be on the midterm <laughs> is this going to be on the exam as though there's no other reason to learn this stuff unless you know 
it's going to be on the midterm or going to be on the exam or you're going to be assessed about it. Really, the... It's, uh, I'm digressing a lot today. It's just a lot on my mind. It's the coffee. So this becoming operational of the human is kind of like a weighted blanket. So weighted blankets being those things that give people a sense of security, you know, in a very insecure world. Uh, so this is, you know, in a sense, something to celebrate. And Baudrillard makes that pretty clear. It's like, maybe we have to be excited about this uh, giving over of the real into the virtual, where we don't have to worry about the real anymore because the real is very complicated. The real is very scary. So in Baudrillard's words and how he ends this chapter, and I'll read this quote in length because it's pretty important. He says that where we might deplore the disappearance of the real and the virtual, the disappearance of the event and information, the disappearance of thought in artificial intelligence, the disappearance of values and ideologies in the globalization of trade, we should instead, instead rejoice in this totalization of the world, which, by purging everything of its functions and technical goals, makes room for the singularity of thought, the singularity of the event, the singularity of language, the singularity of the object and the image. In the end, it is the very existence of single-track thinking, la pensée unique, of the totalitarian system of the economy of information and artificial intelligence, and the automation and exponential development of these things, which leaves space for a world that is literally true. It is the final accomplishment of reality which leaves room for the radical illusion. Now, it is in this literal truth this literal play of the world, that the freedom lies. Okay, what the fudge-sickle does that mean? Well, I think that we actually got to jump ahead a little bit here to make sense of this. So the idea of singularity kind of comes out and even works after this one, um, where he makes the case that the singularity is... And he's not he's not talking about the singularity in the Ray Kurzweil kind of sense. He's talking about it in, like, kind of individual manifestations of it, where a singular settlement or singular society or colony or something like that that is determined strictly by its own rules and codes and conventions and geographical limits and all that uh, represents a kind of singularity that people disappear into. And this is beneficial for Baudrillard because then that's, uh, there is in that kind of singularity what, what might appear to be a kind of foreclosure of possibility, a limitless possibility, because that singularity is always butted up against other singularities that may not ever come in contact with one another. But by virtue of there being their own singularities, they always kind of posit the, the limits of their own um, knowledge, right? Which always pushes them to new and interesting places. This isn't a, that's an abstract idea. I don't know if that makes any sense, but... Uh, so in that case, when we see the kind of singularity of the world coming about, in a sense it kind of... It, you know, it being the realization of a kind of totalizing effect does limit what it means to be human. But in this limitation, it also, I think, drums up a kind of want for that next thing or want for um, that next possibility. Or we could read it in this way, whereby having this totalization occur, this kind of universalization of knowledge or this attainment of a singularity, we see all the burdens, oops, all the burdens of the world stripped away. We no longer need to think about them. We can then focus on, you know, maybe pure thought, right? We're no longer burdened by the real. We're no longer burdened by our bodies and our flesh and all that. 
we are instead left to proliferate endlessly into total possibility. Now, I should say that I think that Baudrillard is being, you know, sarcastic when he when he's writing this or when he wrote this. He does not celebrate this this possibility. But in proper Baudrillardian fashion, he's always keeping the possibility of reversal, even of his own thought, on the horizon. That pushes us into the next chapter. Living Coin, Singularity of the Phantasm. Now, I won't spend a whole lot of time on this one, but he makes one interesting um, observation where he says that rape is really the most violent when it is not the act of taking pleasure, but is the act of forcing pleasure onto someone. Where, uh, I don't know if any, I would certainly hope that women, uh, that I don't scare away women or other minorities from listening to this type of stuff, but um, he makes the case that, well, how could I frame this? How many men, there's a moment in the film Nymphomaniac, you know, Lars von Trier film, when, what's the protagonist, the, the woman, the young woman protagonist, uh, is telling all her boy lovers that they were the first one to give her an orgasm, make her have an orgasm. It's obviously a lie because she's telling all of them this. Um, but the idea here is that they derive a whole lot of pleasure from knowing that they gave this kind of pleasure, which is an extension of the, uh, I think, patriarchal uh, belief of, you know, being the deliverers of the good, kind of the capitalist dream as well. The system delivers the goods. Uh, you know, how women need a man and a penis to be pleasured, when in fact that's very much not the case. Um, so with that being said, there is this way that, and even in my own conversations with men in the past, there's a desire, a strange desire to exert a man's sexual prowess by being able to deliver pleasure as though if they fail to do so, they are considered less of a man. So it's a kind of terrorism by, you know, delivering pleasure. Instead of dropping bombs, you're dropping pleasure. So this goes back to the idea of the gift, okay? So this gift coming out of mouse is the idea of giving something through the potlatch kula and then not having this thing be exchanged in the way that we understand it today with the universal equivalent, that is money, but by giving a gift, it is assumed that you are going to be given a greater gift in return. So by uh, men in this situation, then, I guess, intensify this logic to the point that they believe that doing that is going to yield them greater results in the end. So that's why the act of giving pleasure, the act of giving this gift, is an oppressive thing. And it does maintain a degree of authority in some spaces. Now, obviously, I'm being very heteronormative about this, uh, just you know, f for the sake of simplicity and how I could, speaking in my own experiences. Um, but it's not a benevolent or neutral nor neutral act. It is very much entrenched within this logic of domination through pleasure or kind of uh, an extension of the global logic of delivering, you know, democracy and freedom and justice as though those things exist 
and then ex- as though those things should be disseminated and should be universalized. So that situation is kind of the logic of the gift intensified, made oppressive, right? Kind of mobilized in favor of a certain group. Uh, but it is, in a sense, a relic of a, t- of a system that was beneficial, just that it's now taken to its pornographic level. Where, yeah, and porn is one excellent example where, um, you know, women are paid not to enjoy themselves, but to demonstrate that they're enjoying themselves, putting in the minds of young men that, you know, they are the ones that, oh, it's such a joke. Um, but this, the logic of exchange and the gift disappears with the introduction of money for Baudrillard because, or well, and what this necessarily implies is that people give themselves away or they give up the idea of exchange that involved kind of a negotiation and therefore involved, you know, some thought behind it. All that goes away when suddenly a universal equivalent is introduced, that is money. So, you know, set by the market. So you, we have no idea why um, like a loaf of bread costs $4, whatever it costs. Um, we have no idea why, but we just kind of agree. Walk into the store, go up to the counter, pay the amount, don't negotiate, you don't discuss it, and that's just it. It's just set from some kind of, it's as though God themselves just, just did it. That propels us now into the th- next chapter. I'm sorry I'm doing it like this. Uh, but every chapter is different. And, yeah. uh, real event, faded event, singularity of the event. So in the age of CNN and Fox, what does an event mean? Well, this whole emphasis and obsession with real time or an event happening in real time disturbs the idea of what an event is because it becomes an instantaneous thing that comes as quickly as it goes. And how many people have, can speak to the kind of ephemeral nature of the media? the medium where uh you know a day will go by and someone might recollect a news event from the day before to which you say wow that that was only yesterday like so many events take place that they lose their meaning as events they disappear in their proliferation which is a very bodyardian idea you know sex disappears in its proliferation with pornography uh you know introduce anything else there so the event goes away when it becomes totally real, totally present. So in the wake of all these real events, quote, quote unquote, real, uh, Baudrillard says that we dream of senseless events, which free us from the tyranny of meaning and from always being constrained to seek out the equivalence between effects and causes. We live in terror of both excess and of meaning and total meaninglessness. Hence the hold which excessive events have on us, events which are to be banal, which are to the banal context of social and personal life, what the excessive signifiers to language in Levi-Strauss's theory, namely that which grounds it as symbolic function beyond equivalence of meaning. So the real event butts up against an event, because an event for Baudrillard is first and foremost... um, is itself unreal, precisely because it is the result of things that should not have happened. An event is something, is kind of, it's always already an anomaly. It's something that stands outside the logic of the system, or the logic of the time, or whatever. Because if it subscribed to that logic, then it wouldn't be an event. It would be just 
something that never appeared. Someone walking down the street or politicians stealing money is not an event. These things disappear faster than anything else. Um, Notre Dame catching on fire is an event. It's something that the whole world turns to or, uh, yeah, as you know, just one example. Um, so these, it, it, the event goes away as an event when it becomes wholly real. And that is when it is uh, dissected and understood. This is where the conspiracy theory comes in, in disturbing the event or destroying the event. It always searches for these causes, always searches for the reasons that something transpired. Kind of, uh, and that's why conspiracy theories are in many ways an extension of the logic of kind of modernity and that they don't stand outside of that logic as some people might be want to think. That is, they don't, um, they aren't just propagated by, you know, crazy people. They are very much enmeshed in the very logic of the system. So then from the media event, we enter photography, which is the next chapter. So photography played an interesting role in Baudrillard's life and career here. He did actually, he didn't write about it all that much, but he was a photographer uh, and he was not, not bad at it either. Um, but yeah, he had some interesting ideas about photography and we'll get into them here. So of the photography, he, photographer, he says that it is the photographer's objective lens, which paradoxically reveals the non-objectivity of the world, which reveals that something that will not be resolved either by analysis or resemblance. It is technology which takes us beyond resemblance to the heart of the trompe l'oeil of reality. It is through both its non-realist play with technology and its decoupage, its stillness, its silence, its phenomenological reduction of movement, that the photograph confirms its status as the purest, most artificial image. So the objective photograph, that is the thing that people hold with such high esteem. You know, you catch someone in the act and you photograph them, then it, all a photograph does is show the truth. Same with the surveillance camera. The surveillance camera is beyond criticism. It is beyond challenge. Why? Surveillance cameras don't exist neutrally. Surveillance cameras aren't placed placed in certain places neutrally. Like, just, we could take the white guy response or the George Orwell type thing uh, to understand that, but we could also just look at it through any other way where... Uh, it's no coincidence that surveillance cameras proliferate in places with marginalized communities. It's not that these people commit more crimes. It's that, you know, there is an entrenched belief that they do. So what is captured more? More marginalized people committing crimes than non-marginalized people, which then fits into and promotes the agenda of these types of acts. Where when, you know, for people who have hold power, if what is depicted on the camera or what is depicted in the surveillance camera is does not fit the narrative then it doesn't exist think of police body cams for instance so in capturing an image that thing whatever whatever it is you capture becomes an object resting them from that kind of privileged position they become they disappear into their becoming uh copyable i guess in a sense through the photographic image they get shown for what they really are that is simply an image in already so it is in that sense that the objectivity objectivity of the photograph destabilizes objectivity because it shows us for what we really are that is non-objective uh, beings that is already simulated beings 
So it is in that sense, and this is what Baudrillard says, that the photographic moment is the moment of a duel. So the objectivity of the lens is butted up against the objectivity of the thing being captured where there's a play, uh, an antagonism between the two challenge where the objective lens harboring no illusions about the nature of the simulacrum and the thing being photographed believing themselves to be wholly real, you know, not already determined image, not an already determined image, um, each has their own respective position challenged and thwarted by being put in proximity with the essence of something else that challenges that very belief. So now we'll get into the last chapter here, shadowing the world. So what can we do about all this? Well, and this is an idea that Baudrillard puts forth at different places as well. The task is to think more appropriately. The task is to engage in theory, to, to theorize the world. Where he says that the act of thinking is an act of seduction, which aims to deflect the world from its being and its meaning at the risk of being itself seduced and led astray. This is how theory proceeds with the systems it analyzes. So the object of theory is to arrive at an account of the system which follows out its internal logic to its end, without adding anything, yet which, at the same time, totally inverts that system, revealing its hidden non-meaning. The nothing which haunts it, the absence at the heart of the th system, the shadow running alongside it. And this is possible because, he's, as he says at another point, uh, the secret to theory is that there is no truth. Now, if you can grasp, not grasp that, but if you embrace that idea, then the way you approach the world is not from the axiomatic position of truth that would simply, you know, fail to grasp the logic of seduction. Um, but if you proceed from the axiom that the unreal is what is real, whatever that means, um, then you are much better equipped to actually engage with the world. So more specifically, this occupies the place of radical theory or radical thought that doesn't proclaim to know. This is how it is radical. So confronted with a world that is wholly real, supposedly, uh, the only way to challenge it is to oppose it. You know, don't fight fire with fire, fight fire with water type thing. So as he ends the book, he says that the world was given to us as something enigmatic and unintelligible. And the task of thought is to make it, if possible, even more enigmatic and unintelligible. Since the world is evolving towards a frenzied state of affairs, we have to take a frenzied view of it. The player must never be bigger than the game itself, nor the theorist bigger than the theory, nor theory bigger than the world itself. Which I think is a good way to end it. Like, he gives us, <laughs> granted, a, uh, a vague way to, you know, approach this, this system, but I think that it gives us a good kind of method that is always being, keeping on the horizon the idea that we are, could be very well wrong in the way that we are going about engaging with the world and that we should, you know, depart from the axiom of doubt uh, in order to challenge the certainty present everywhere else. But yeah, that pretty well wraps up that one. I hope I covered everything, but there's obviously so much here. Uh, it's a good book, obviously. Uh, and if you haven't read it, definitely read it. I think I'm getting pretty close to doing all Baudrillard. I kind of want to get through it all and then I can start focusing on other things. Uh, but with that, you know, on that note, 
for those that listened, I'd like to hear what you have to say, what you think, or anything, because the stuff is really enigmatic, and there's no real way to under there's no real one way to answer understand this stuff i'm just trying to present it as it as i see it which is obviously filtered uh so on that note take care